Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week's news is brought to us by Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll and Dave Ansell. In science news this week, how HIV evades the immune system. In order to neutralise HIV, you have to switch off a structure in the virus, which is how it gets itself inside its target cells. The problem is that the virus is quite cunning because it keeps the molecular Velcro that it uses to do that trick well hidden just until the moment that it needs to get into a cell so they never really get shown to the immune system. So the immune system never really gets the opportunity to make an antibody that could do this. And now antibodies found in long-term HIV patients could offer a way to block the virus from attaching in the first place. We also hear the archaeological and genetic evidence for how farming communities wiped out hunting and gathering. What they found was that these two groups were too distinct to be related. So they then looked at how ancient hunter-gatherers might be related to modern-day Europeans. And again, the relationship was almost non-existent. And how enzymes electrically check DNA for errors. And one will land somewhere on some DNA, another one will land some distance away, and it will inject some electrons into the DNA and if the DNA is healthy it carries like an electrical wire the charge to the other protein and if that signal reaches the other enzyme it knows that the piece of DNA must be intact, must be in good condition. Plus Sarah Castor-Perry takes us back to this week in science history and the invention of DNA fingerprinting. That's all on the way. A story which has definitely hogged the headlines all around the world this week is the announcement by scientists down in California in the US. This is um, Dennis Burton and his colleagues are based at the Scripps Institute that they've discovered some new classes of antibodies that might be able to neutralise HIV. Why this is important is that we think that in order to protect the something like 3 million people who are catching HIV every single year around the world at the moment, we need to give them some kind of vaccine that will make them make antibodies that can turn off HIV the minute it comes into the body. And these are what these neutralising antibodies do. The problem is that in order to neutralise HIV, you have to switch off a structure in the virus called its spike protein, which is how it gets itself inside its target cells. It attacks the immune system, cells that have a marker on their surface called CD4. The problem is that the virus is quite cunning because it keeps the molecular Velcro that it uses to do that trick well hidden just until the moment that it needs to get into a cell. It very quickly uses and deploys these proteins on its surface and then it hides them again. So they never really get shown to the immune system. So the immune system never really gets the opportunity to make an antibody that could do this. But researchers wondered whether someone who'd been infected with HIV for a very long time could in fact make these antibodies, but obviously once the virus is in the body, it's too late. That doesn't mean that the antibodies couldn't be used if they were present to start with and therefore prevent someone getting infected in the first place. So what this group uh, have done is they recruited something like 1,800 people. They got blood samples from people right around the world, and that's important because HIV comes in many different shapes and sizes. There are lots of different strains of it, so you want to check many different forms of HIV and they took those blood samples and they looked in there for antibodies that could block HIV and in the first patient they began to study they actually found some they've called them PG9 another one's been called PG16 and what these antibodies do is lock on to a structure on the side of that HIV spike protein which is called the VS2 
VS3 domain. And what that does is it's part of the process by which the virus latches on to cells to get inside them. And what the researchers say is that this is not so hidden as the other structures that uh, are used in the process of cell invasion. It might be possible to turn that into a vaccine and as a result, therefore, we'd have a new target to aim at. So they're in the process of looking for more and more of these targets and these antibodies as it goes. Is it important to target the spikes um, because the spike is important for the way the virus is working and therefore it can't evolve very quickly because if it changes significantly then it won't work? Exactly. Because that's the way in which the virus gets inside cells, if it changed that at all, it would no longer be able to get inside its target cell. So it has to keep or conserve the structure of some structure in order to have the same tropism, the same ability to attack these cells. So if it needs to keep it the same, it's therefore vulnerable, and the scientists are saying that could be the Achilles heel. So we need to find structures on that protein that we can show to the immune system to make them make antibodies. This is encouraging because it shows, given that this person they got these antibodies from already had HIV, that people can make these antibodies, and if they've got them before they get infected, they will protect them. If it isn't um, exposed very often, is it going to be hard, is it hard for the immune system to catch it at the moment when it's being exposed? Exactly right. And so That's researchers hard. say that the way around the problem is to find these proteins, these targets, these antibodies lock onto, and then find a way of making a stable form of them that you can lock it into the configuration that it uses when the virus is most vulnerable, inject that into a person, and it shows the immune system what it looks like so it can make these antibodies that, that throw a spanner in the infectious works and stop the virus getting in in the first place. Brilliant. Now, Velcro, or probably more better in the BBC, hook loop fasteners, are, is an incredibly useful thing. Um, they're actually inspired by a natural means of distributing um, seeds, the burrs, which catch onto sort of dogs' coats and they get, work their way in and then eventually they fall out and distribute the seeds where the dogs walked off to a couple of weeks later. Is that really where the, the idea came yeah, from? Yeah, it was a Swiss scientist was actually found his dog was completely full of burrs and he was getting fed up with picking them out and he suddenly thought, aha, this might come in and handy. And he borrowed this. And he borrowed this. Um, but up till now, all the Velcro um, that you is made out of basically polymers or um, things which don't work at very high temperatures. And they're pretty strong, but as soon as you put them in a hot car engine or around the exhaust, um, then they're going to melt and stop working very well. Um, now, however, a group led by Joseph Mayer at the Technical University of Munich has discovered something rather tougher. He's made steel Velcro. <laughs> Good grief. Really? Yeah, he's taken 0.2 millimetre steel sheet and then pressed through to make little structures in it. He's got two different types. Um, one type is basically looks like normal Velcros. They push, push lots of loops through on one side of the of a steel Velcro. He gets another one and he put, pushes through little spikes. They're not quite like hooks like normal Velcro, but they're kind of like wiggly spikes. And you push these wiggly spikes in between the, the hoop. Um, loops it will stick quite nicely and you can, can you just, peel it off again and you can just peel it off again without any tools many times or um, only work once the first four or five times it does lose a bit of strength it loses maybe a, a fifth of the stre- original strength but after that then it as, as often as you like wow so what could you use it for well they're suggesting for actually sort of manufacturing cars because there's lots of things which are screwed into a car and that takes a while you need a, a tool and it takes ages to to screw in so instead you could just sort of velcro it on so maybe velcro on the lights or velcro on your exhaust system and if you need to change it quickly just sort of unzip unzip the velcro change take the exhaust out and zip puts it a whole on. new spin on sort of cut and shut cars doesn't it they wouldn't bother welding them together in future they just velcro two halves together 
Possibly. <laughs> is, is this marketable? When 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 can we expect to see this? Um, in the market? It, there is a company making the stuff. I expect, as with everything, it will probably be in fairly specialised uses to start with. But um, there's no reason in the next few years. Or maybe even space? Um, a Velcro is used in... Conventional Velcro is used in space. They use it for, like, attaching all the tools floating around. But possibly, yeah. Well, I don't think I'd want to buy my car from where you're getting yours from, Chris. Um, anyway, also in the news this week, uh, where do all the farmers come from? Farming and cities seem very much the norm now, but in the grand scheme of things, they're actually very recent developments. Modern humans have been around for about 200,000 years, but farming has only been with us for roughly the last 10,000. And farming is really important because once you start farming a piece of land, you can actually support a much greater number of people in a smaller area than you could with most sort of hunting and gathering. Although there are some places in the world where land and sea are so abundant in food that you don't really need to farm to support lots of people. That's another story. So are you saying then that, that industrialisation and big population explosion and having machines and things that we have today is down to the fact that we had farmers once. They enable people not to have to spend their life looking for food. They could do other things like science instead. Yeah, the idea is once you get a population of people sort of so compressed in a small area, um, then they start doing you know, doing exciting things like building cities and developing technologies. But anyway, uh, this is back in the Near East, and that includes Iraq, Iran, Syria, places like that. Um, it's one place where farming is thought to have originated and later spread through Europe. And there's been something of an argument between academics as to how that spread took place and how it happened so quickly and some people have argued that farming techniques were rather peacefully communicated through neighboring neighboring populations and that hunter-gatherers gradually just gave up their land their lifestyle and uh, and their language in favor of more productive ones of the farmers but some people argue that actually the farmers were a specific group of people who outcompeted and eventually replaced the native native hunter-gatherers in europe how would you know that um, well, <laughs> um, archaeology tends to look at sort of signs for different cultures. So if you get one culture replacing another, um, there's usually indications like pottery um, will sort of gradually just totally you know, subsume other types of pottery. But um, another way of looking at it is DNA. And Barbara Bramanti and her team have taken mitochondrial DNA or mtDNA samples from three groups of people. So publishing in the journal Science this week, they took mtDNA from a group of 11,000-year-old hunter-gatherers, mtDNA from some of the earliest farmers from a bit later, about 7,000 years BC. And uh, what they found was that these two groups were too distinct to be related. So they then looked at how ancient hunter-gatherers might be related to modern-day Europeans, and again, the relationship was almost non-existent. So it does seem that Central Europeans are descended, at least in part, from these early farmers. Um, what we can draw from this is that at the end of the last Ice Age, some people developed farming and they moved most of the way across Europe, quite likely displacing the hunter-gatherers. And they think that these farmers originated in an area around modern-day Slovakia or Hungary. And uh, the researchers do say that they need to do a few more DNA studies just to be sure exactly where our farming ancestors are. Have you got any clues as to where they may have come from? Um, yeah, it could have been Slovakia or, or Hungary. Um, but why there, specifically? Because um, because they're associated with what's called LBK ceramics. Um, <laughs> and this is a, a ceramic style which seems to have originated in that area and then spread across Europe along with farming and techniques like that. But is there anything geographically that would have meant that farming was particularly easy to discover 
there compared with other places? No, the, the actual origins of farming were in the Fertile Crescent, which, as I said, was sort of uh, Iraq and Iran and Syria. But it, it just seems that the group that took farming and took it across Europe was actually based in Slovakia. But uh, no, we, we don't really know why, why it was them. Uh, <laughs> I think that, that might come up later. We might find out one day. I'm very glad they did come into existence, though, because we wouldn't be able to sit here making radio programmes if it wasn't for the fact that someone else was worrying about where our lunch comes from. Thank you, Diana. Now, also this week, there's a wonderful paper published in the journal PNAS, and this is by Jackie Barton, who's uh, over in Caltech, again in California. And what she's discovered and presents this week is how bacteria, and probably also humans, keep their DNA checked and has and with good integrity. Now, what I mean by that is if you were to look in any one of our cells, for example, there's about two metres of DNA coiled up and that two metres of DNA contains about three billion genetic letters. If I had a book of similar magnitude, it would be about two metres tall. So if I piled up books or dictionaries or something to about the height of two metres, that would be about the same number of letters as there are letters in the genetic code. Every single one of those genetic letters in every cell is getting checked all the time because if mistakes creep into DNA, it spells disaster because the DNA is your cellular recipe book. If you make the wrong recipe, cells go off kilter, things don't work properly, they can even become cancerous. So it's critical that DNA is continuously being checked so that it's, it remains in tip-top condition. There are various molecular machines, enzymes, that can walk along DNA checking the structure of the genetic letters and making sure they're correct and that the genes are spelled out correctly. But there are not very many of them in a cell. In fact, there's only 30 of these little machines that checks one type of DNA error. So researchers have been wondering, well, how can possibly such a small number of these little machines check such a huge amount of DNA and do it efficiently? Well, when this group of scientists began to look at these tiny machines, these enzymes, they noticed that they're very often associated with little clusters of iron and sulphur atoms. And these iron-sulphur clusters are very good at both receiving and donating electricity, electrons. And what they've discovered by doing some very careful experiments in bacteria, and because bacteria have analogous genes to humans, you can expect that what's going on in the bacteria is probably true for us too. What they've discovered is that these enzymes don't physically have to check every single bit of DNA. What they actually do is they work in pairs, and one will land somewhere on some DNA, another one will land some distance away, and it will inject some charge, some electrons, into the DNA, and if the DNA is healthy, it carries like an electrical wire the charge to the other protein, the other enzyme, and if that signal reaches the other enzyme, it knows that the piece of DNA nearby must be intact, must be in good condition, so it departs and goes elsewhere and checks somewhere else. If the signal doesn't get through, the enzyme painstakingly crawls along the DNA, reading it letter by letter, looking for a mistake that it can then put right, and once it finds one, of course... The signal is restored and then it knows, ah, this bit of DNA is now fine, so I can go elsewhere. So it's like spell-checking an entire word as opposed to the individual letters. Exactly. So it's like your brain. When you scan a page, you can see a word spelled wrong and then you can jump ahead to the bit that's wrong. But if the whole word sentence um, looks fine, then you jump to the next sentence. It's a bit like an electrician doing a continuity check in a house. You just send an electric signal around the house and if you get a signal backed on the other side of the circuit, you know things must be okay. I guess this is looking for quite major errors in the DNA. It, it won't tell if you've got a few of the letters the wrong way around. Or... Oh, no, it will, because these enzymes are very specific for certain types of genetic error, and certain enzymes repair only certain types of error. So they can tell that a word is spelt wrong, a genetic word, that is, and so they can go in and put the letter right, and there are different enzymes that repair other kinds of spelling mistakes, and they can tell because the charge does not flow properly.
it seems. Brilliant. Um, now, most I've got a story here about conservation. Now, conservation, most conservation efforts seems to be put into species which are pretty or otherwise attractive to humans, things like pandas. But often there's no point in trying to conserve them if, the, if their ecosystem collapses. For example, there's no point in trying to stop anyone killing and, um, pandas if the bamboo they live on dies out. Uh, in simple cases like this, the result's obvious. But in most ecosystem in what, what way each species is dependent on one another is so complicated. It's very hard to predict the knock-on effects of losing one species without using a huge, complicated computer model. And by the time you get something as complicated as real life, the computer models just get so unwieldy they tend to fall over and not be able to cope. Uh, now, according to Stefano Alencia and his colleagues, um, Google's page rank might hold the answer to this problem. <laughs> Google is the answer to everything, isn't it? <laughs> Is there anything that Google can't do? Well, this isn't using Google just by like searching the answer of like, is this is is um, is killing all the giraffes going to cause major ecological collapse in Africa? Okay, so tell us how it works. Okay, now Google's page rank is the way that Google tells out tells basically whether a page is any good. Um, basically, Google very simply Google works on the principle that if lots of other important sites are linking to your site, um, then your site is probably important too. Um, and so they rank every site by this thing called page rank, and the ones with the highest page rank for a given results for search will get on to result, come back to you first. Now, Stefano has been applying this to food webs. So if um, lions, hyenas and leopards, etc., all eat a certain type of gazelle, then they will transfer some of their importance to the gazelle. And depending on how much their diet is a gazelle, if they eat only a gazelle once every three weeks, then it won't be very much their importance. But if it's a major part of their diet, then a major then it, a lot of it will go across. I get it. So you can structure your ecosystem and work out how important different aspects of it are to other bits and so on. So you can see how the energy and the, and the, and the, the density of these links are across the whole food web, basically. Right, yeah, and then you essentially do a search and find out which of the um, which species are going to be the most dangerous to lose. And he's done this, and using his PageRank system, it gives the similar sort of results to the big, complicated, expensive computer models. Um, and as we know, PageRank scales to hugely complicated systems. It works for the web, so it should work for complicated, real ecological systems. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Well, Let's keep an eye on that one. Did they say particularly if any, any animal is absolutely critical? It's not a blue bottle or something uh, unpleasant like that. Uh, they haven't put, it, they haven't put um, any major systems in yet, but yeah. It'll be interesting to see. Thank you, Dave. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, Sarah Castor Perry looks back to 1984 and the invention of a technology that's helped to solve both criminal cases and paternity issues. That's DNA fingerprinting. This week in science history saw in 1984 the invention of DNA fingerprinting by Sir Alec Jeffries. Since then, the technique has been used in thousands of paternity and criminal cases around the world. We know that variation in features such as eye colour and blood group are heritable, i.e. they are passed on from parents to children, and are easy to test for. Jeffries and his team were interested in whether small changes in the DNA code itself could be found, as being able to detect these tiny changes and whether they are inherited could be used to tell people apart or if they were related. Looking at something like the gene for blood group, you would not necessarily be able to tell if two people were related or if two blood samples came from the same person, as there is so little variation, just A, AB, B and O, meaning that lots of people in the world have each blood type. In order to tell people apart using their DNA, Jeffrey's team began looking for pieces of DNA that would show more variation. 
This led them to pieces called VNTRs, Variable Number Tandem Repeats, basically pieces of DNA that have repeats of a sequence of bases. There are four bases, adenine, thymine, cytosine and guanine, or A, T, C and G, that make up the genetic code. The order they are found in in the DNA determines everything about you, whether you have blonde hair, brown eyes or diseases such as cystic fibrosis. In a variable number tandem repeat area of DNA, there would be a core sequence of between 10 to 80 bases that would be repeated anywhere between 1 and 20 times in that piece of DNA, with the number of repeats being inherited from your parents. These repeats occur in many places in the human genome. The first variable number tandem repeat that Jeffries and his team found was in the gene for myoglobin, an oxygen-carrying pigment found in muscle. They were able to create a probe for the core sequence, which would find the sequence anywhere that it was present in the DNA code. The eureka moment occurred at 5 past 9 on the morning on September the 10th, 1984. Jeffries was looking at the results of an experiment they carried out using the DNA of his lab assistant and her parents to see if the probe they had created would show up inherited variations in the length of the sequence repeats. A clear pattern was visible, showing the differences in the lengths of the repeats between the assistant and her parents, but also which of the repeats she had inherited from each parent. Jeffries immediately understood the importance of this technique for resolving paternity disputes, immigration cases and criminal cases. Since the late 1990s, sequences of DNA called short tandem repeats, similar to the variable number tandem repeats discovered by Jeffries, have been used. As the name suggests, short tandem repeats contain a much smaller core sequence of between 2 and 10 bases, compared with between 10 and 80 for the variable number tandem repeats. These are less damaged by degradation of a DNA sample than the larger variable number tandem repeats, making them much more useful in a forensic case where DNA from a crime scene might have been affected by time or the elements. As TV shows like CSI and Silent Witness have shown, DNA fingerprinting is used in criminal cases to link suspects to a scene or a rape victim or to find the identity of a body. But a relatively new use of the technology is for conservation. It is being used at Zurich Zoo to investigate how their flock of rare ibis birds are related so that they can prevent the birds from inbreeding, something that's damaging to the health of the species. Countless criminal and paternity cases have involved DNA fingerprinting over the last 25 years. It's allowed dangerous and violent criminals to be put away. There are occasional problems, particularly as such care must be taken to prevent contamination, but it is an essential tool in the fight against crime, the solving of paternity disputes, and growing in use for conservation of rare species. That was Sarah Castor-Perry explaining how Sir Alec Jeffries first invented DNA fingerprinting this week in 1984. That's all we have for this Naked Scientist News Flash, which featured Chris Smith, Diana O'Carroll, Dave Ansell and Sarah Castor-Perry. The Naked Scientist News Flash is produced by me, Ben Valsler. As always, there's plenty more science available on our website and in our other podcasts. You can find them all on the web at thenakedscientists.com. We'll be back with another roundup of science news next week. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.